Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa, as well as Nigel and Elise. All right, so let's just get right back to the countdown, right where we left off. Speaking of sad, talk about some more films. We have one more on our list of bad Bond movies before we transition to the, the movies that are more meh for us. So the last aggressively bad movie on our list comes in at number 20. It is 2008's Quantum of Solace. That's right. The one where Wrong. the evil crime syndicate that meets during the opera, because that's a good idea. Nigel? You're so wrong. Well, Nigel said I was hey, wrong son. first, so go Just... on. <laughs> how, oh, yes. how does it feel to be so categorically wrong? <laughs> I wrestle with that a lot, but not regarding this movie. Yeah, I hope we can, I hope we can still be friends after this. Like, I consider us friends, but I don't know now whether... I don't know whether our friendship can withstand this slander. What it really depends on is, is if we can find that quantum of solace in our friendship that will allow it to continue despite the maelstrom of disagreement going around it, which is, by the way, the literal usage of quantum of solace in Ian Fleming. Go on! Okay, so I, I will admit that maybe I have a soft spot for this film based off of repeated viewings why are you doing jazz hands, because huh? i did the because I, I did the quantum of solace bit ah, he's very proud I of see. that bit i did a textual reading mm. <laughs> <laughs> well this is this has gotten derailed by half hasn't it um so it. it's tradition it's in my house out, everybody I, yeah it it's tradition in my house basically every Christmas to watch Quantum of Solace on the TV because RTE used to always show it on Christmas Eve. And so it would be on when we're watching, uh, like when we're watching TV. And so then when we were young, we'd always go to bed at around the same time. So we would never, like we had seen the film before, but then it was like, it became like a funny joke being like, oh, ha ha ha. You know, guess we'll never know what happens after this point in Quantum of Solace. Um, But then now they haven't shown it, they're showing later bonds or whatever. We just make a habit of watching it around Christmas time. Do you still so stop it at the same me... time? Like, oh, no. <laughs> no. No, it'll get to that bit. It'll get to that bit in the film. And then we're just like, we'll all share like a knowing look being like, oh yeah. And we're going past this point now. <laughs> but what I think. That's nice. What I think is really good is because for like, Obviously, this is a short story and stuff, but then it's like, what if, like, you know, they're kind of running, it feels, at first my reading was like, oh, well, they've run out of ideas and they're like, well, fuck it. What if Bond fights, throws dart at dartboard, climate change. Um, <laughs> and they dare to say, well, what if climate change is bad? But then. What if? Yeah. Crazy hypothetical. But like, what I think is really impressive about this film is. Um, like if I, I'm trying to get Twitter to load up because I want to, I, I made a little thread about this, but basically if I were to sum up, um, Quantum of Solace in one word, it would be unforgiving, you know, where it's not, it's not the grittiest Bond film, but it's definitely like the most unforgiving because you have that line in Spectre 
which is where um, Ray finds is like, well, you know, having a license to kill is also having a license not to kill. You know, you need a human agent in the field to make that. You need to make that judgment call as as to whether you should take someone's life or not. And then they just kind of do nothing with that because it's all Andrew Scott wants drones. Whereas in Quantum of Solace, like Bond, like the whole film, M is telling him, you know, don't kill people, you know, bring him in. And Bond is like, well, oops, guess he walked in the way of a bullet. <laughs> you know, these things happen. But yeah, the whole thing is like Bond shouldn't kill unless he explicitly has to. Uh, like it forms i guess kind of a commentary if you want to call it that on like how wanton a killer bond is and like you know later on we have um like the bond girl is literally drowned in oil like until her lungs are full and she's just left there for bond to find and he's off having another adventure so he doesn't come back for ages you're like that's really brutal yeah. like i know in goldfinger which i guess this is a callback to you know yeah. She's covered in gold and left, but like she's dr- like suffocated in oil, you know? And then at the end of the film, he leaves uh, Dominic Green stranded in the desert with nothing to drink but motor oil. Like, it's so unforgiving and harsh a film. And like, you know, it takes place in a desert. So I guess it kind of reflects that too. But I feel like this does an awful lot more than people give it credit for. I feel like people dismiss Quantum of Solace in the same way. Not for the same reasons before you say anything, Sam. <laughs> but it's dismissed off the cuff in the same way as people dismiss on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Elise, what do you think of this film? I, I very much, and Sam mentioned this earlier, the, the Craig movies are more interconnected than the other um, Bond movies. So it's really our first Bond sequel because it takes place basically immediately after Casino Royale. So for me, and this is something I feel about all the Craig movies, like I personally feel a little bit more invested in them because they're all related, which is not to say that I don't love non-interconnected Bond movies because obviously otherwise I wouldn't be here right now. But um, in addition to what Nigel's saying, Bond is like really depressed in this movie He's trying to pretend he's fine. As the movie goes on, you just see him. He's completely, like, unraveling and being brutal and being more in his feelings, even though his version of that is, oh, that guy's dead, not like, I'm going to cry in the corner. Um, I do think that it does suffer a little bit. It's the shortest of all the Bond movies, and that's because there was the writer's strike the year that this was written. Um, so it could, there are probably things that if in another year we might've gotten a more complete movie, but I do like that he's so upset and he doesn't end up with Camille or anything at the end. Like, it's just like, oh, we hung out, we helped each other and then we went our separate ways. There wasn't the, there wasn't romance in this one, which is, I, I do enjoy that in Bond, but I, I don't think it was it would have felt okay after what happened in Casino Royale. I feel like if there was romance in this, it would have felt like, not inappropriate, but it just would have felt like not, I don't know. I wouldn't have well, believed it. Well, and see, like, we're going to talk about Diamonds Are Forever later, but there's a real problem for me in the aftermath of On Her Majesty's Secret Service where 
the first part, like the first five minutes of Diamonds of Forever is supposed to resolve like all of Bond's feelings about Tracy dying in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, well, he's off. He's off being Bond. We're never going to talk about his wife again. And this movie, to me, the really good redeeming factor of it is that they didn't do that, that they actually spent like a whole movie yeah. trying to like, wh- how would he actually react to like this person that he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life with dying like in such a you know he has complex feelings about it there's a lot of like revenge type of narratives to this which I think is really interesting I do think there are parts of this that work really well but I do think that the movie is severely underwritten probably because of the writer's strike which I'm sure Sam will tell us more about here in a moment I I liked his relationship with the Bond girl I thought that she was a really interesting character and like the fact that they were both in the same emotional space at the same time I found to be fascinating because that's not usually how we do bond girls we have bond girls that have motivations but they're not these kind of motivations and so I thought that was really fascinating I just I don't know this movie to me like there are just long sections of it that feel really underwritten so I'll, I'll just do this now because it's convenient I started watching bond movies because I discovered them on TV during that period between Dalton and Brosnan. And so, you know, I've been invested since then. I think Tomorrow Never Dies was the first one I saw in the theater. I've seen them all in the theater since then with the, except for this one. And the thing about that is, is that from from the time that I started watching Bond to the time that I read all the novels, to when Craig got cast, which I was a really big fan of, to when they, they, they got the guts to do Casino Royale finally, realizing that this is a reboot of the franchise, they have an opportunity. They have an opportunity to do something they hadn't done since License to Kill, which was actually do part of a Fleming story. And so when they did Casino Royale, they did a whole Fleming story. And I thought, if they do from Russia with love, I will just, I will lose it. They will finally do the novels and do them right. They chose violence instead with this movie. And so I didn't see it in the theater. As the bard says, long story short, it was a bad time. So this was a Netflix movie, an OG Netflix disc in the mail movie for me. Now you may know this, you may not know this, but I have narcolepsy. This was a narcolepsy movie. Tessa has watched me struggle through a movie while constantly falling asleep and waking back up. That was my first experience with Quantum of Solace. I didn't care about it because it wasn't from Russia with love. What I remembered was bad. So that was strike two. And then I was finally ready to watch it again and give it a fair shot a few weeks ago. And yeah, it's as bad as I thought it was. One last thing that I'll say that really turned me off in this, to this movie is that the climax of the movie is just in a hotel. Like, all of the Bond movies have these, like, fantastic, like, set pieces as the climax, except for this one, because it's just like, oh, yeah, this is just a hotel where, like, a couple of dudes were meeting in the middle of the desert. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not even an ice hotel, <laughs> which is such a great transition. Thank you, Tessa. Now we're going to move on to the section of our list that we like to call <laughs> the meh. It's not good. It's not aggressively bad. It's just meh. Starting with number 19, 2002's Die Another Day. The one with Curse Your Sudden But Inevitable Betrayal, Madonna, and the dude with diamonds in his head. 
So I had Di- I had Diana number Die another day at number twenty. So I'm gonna say that we're pretty much on Nailed par. It. Yeah, I do like the change in format of the opening scene where Bond is captured and held for a long time rather than like fake dead or doing something that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. I really like Miranda Frost, and I didn't actually... The first time I watched this, I think her twist kind of surprised me, so I I didn't really expect that, which was nice. Um, I don't hate the invisible car situation as much as other people, but there's just way too much CGI in this movie. It's not... It looks a little ridiculous, and I... I love Halle Berry, but I didn't find her character that interesting. The plot is ridiculous. The face changing, and I know this isn't the first time that we've had plastic surgery as part of a Bond um, thing, but that was kind of unbelievable. And it was sad that Desmond Llewellyn was not in this movie because he had died before it got started. So I, you know, so it's definitely in the meh range for me as well. Nigel, what do you think about Die Another Day? Um, so, I don't know. Like, I'm conflicted as to how I feel about Pierce Brosnan as Bond to begin with. Um, mainly because he's from the same country as I am. And from quite close, geographically speaking, to where I live. So it's a bit weird seeing him as James Bond. It's a bit weird seeing him in a lot of things, really. Like, such as Mamma Mia. So, like, that's my main problem with... I think these films is just, I have conflicting feelings as to how I feel about Pierce Brosnan where it's like, yeah, he's cool. But then when I stop and think about it for like more than three seconds, I'm like, wait, what is he doing as Bond? So I like that. I I feel like John Cleese as well was a bit of a weird choice to play Q, especially following um, Llewellyn. You know, I, I don't know. This film is such a hodgepodge for me where it's higher up in my list list than here i think it's sit it's sitting about maybe 17 mainly because there's films that we haven't gotten to yet that i just really irk me the wrong way and so i chuck them way down the list so i don't really have anything else to um add yeah invisible cargo um (laughs) i i agree with you nigel I think that this is not a cohesive story. Um, I actually said, I think about halfway through watching this, because this was the first time I'd watched it, was on this rewatch. I hadn't seen any Pierce Brosnan films before this last year. And I I think my exact words were, there's too much going on in this film. Like, this this film didn't know what its story was. It had too many. It wanted to do the North Korean general and like his father and there's like the fake out but it also wanted to do plastic surgery but it also wanted to do like there's just too many pieces and they don't ever really mesh together the way you want to i did think that the frost twist was interesting because usually it's the first bond girl that you meet that turns evil like if you if you have an evil bond girl it's usually the first one not the second one this one flipped it it also tried to misdirect us by having us think that Halle Berry was going to turn evil but she didn't so i i found that to be interesting but it was really the only interesting thing about this also i missed desmond llewellyn he will always forever be Q. Yeah, one of like the most interesting things that I found out are just trivia to do with casting. So you know we ha- like Halle Berry is Jinx, right? But then it's like before Berry's casting, Selma Hayek, Saffron Burrows, and Sophie Ellis Baxter were also considered. Sophie for the role. Ellis Baxter, like, man, 
Yeah, as in like the one who sings "Murder on the Dance Floor." It's which like, is a great song. Oh, it's fantastic. Well, right? she shows up in um, uh, the Le Carre adaptation with uh, Hiddleston and um, the Night Manager. Yes, yes, she has. Uh, she shows up in that, I believe. Yeah, but it, like I, I just seen that yet. can't imagine her as Jinx. You know, I think it would have been great. Yeah, but also, like, this is roughly around the time that Murder in the Dance Floor came out, if I remember correctly. I think you're right. I think they're both early 2000s, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, 2003, 2004 was around when Murder in the Dance Floor came out, and this is 2002. And then just, like, about Graves, how um, the alter ego of Colonel Moon... This I'm reading this now from the Wikipedia article. Graves is modeled after Hugo Drax in Ian Fleming's original Moonraker. That's an interesting thing, because, like, the film of Moonraker is wildly different to the film, so it's interesting that we went back to Moonraker for that. A Nazi war criminal who switched places with a British soldier at the end of World War II became a well-respected and wealthy philanthropist and used, his, used this cover, plan, cover to plan a nuclear missile strike on London. Full stop. He was also modeled after Uday Hussein and Richard Branson. Yep. <laughs> yep. Hey, hey, Nigel, would you say that Sophie Ellis Bechter won the... Sophie Ellis Baxter was unable to move this mountain and get cast. Uh, uh, Andy's not here. I have to do it to somebody. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like, I feel like I'm nearly the least qualified to be like the straight man in this dynamic. (laughs) Like, like when I'm doing podcasts, it's like Hannah is great for that on Archive Admirers because she just has the air of a long-suffering um, comedian. You Whereas, will like, too by th- the end of this podcast. Yeah, I don't think I'm cut out for it now. <laughs> you know, and I, and I just have to say this real quick. It's important to go back to the idea of Pierce Brosnan being Bond. There is a long-running theme in these movies about actors who become Bond years after they should have. You know, they hire them when they're too old and they don't have the longevity. We talked about For Your Eyes Only earlier as being a possible jumping on point for another Bond. That's when Pierce Brosnan entered the picture. That's how long ago that was. Yep. So, but there's also some good news and bad news about this movie. And I'll just end with that. The bad news is we could have had Michelle Yeoh back. Her character was going to show back up in Hong Kong. Yes, they had written it. There was a conflict. It didn't work out. But, but it could have been... So it could have been better because we could have had her, but it could have been worse. Tessa, we could have had Brett Ratner, but we didn't. Oh, no. Instead, yeah, instead we got uh, Lee Tamahori who made uh, Once Were Warriors, which is a great movie. Uh, may I humbly submit to the court this piece of evidence as to a pre-bond Pierce Brosnan in the 1992 film The Lawnmower Man, which this, which I feel uh, like this is, the, this is the, one of the, <laughs> the judge will exclude that testimony. Well, no, too bad. Here we go. Okay. He's wearing an e- he's wearing an earring in one ear he for looks, no reason. He looks. Well, he looks very pretty in that yeah, picture that but, you just shared. Like, which we know podcasting is a very visual uh, media, so everyone can't see it. But but like the point is, that's when that's when he should have been Bond when he looked like that. Yes, I agree. 
that's the point. But it's also like uh, any excuse to remind people of the lawnmower man. <laughs> you guys are nailing it with transitions today, by the way, because because Nigel, you mentioned that that the that the 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 main villain in Die Another Day is a is is based off of Hugo Drax. So it's fitting that number eighteen, Bring Me Star Wars from nineteen seventy nine, is Moonraker, the one mm-hmm. where the bad guy does eugenics in space. My audio cut out there. So all I could see was Sam's mouth open. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got as far away from the mic as I could. I kind of love this film. I kind of love this film for how bonkers it is. And like I mentioned it before how di- like, you know, how different this one is to the book where it's like this one, you know, actually makes sense that it's called Moonraker. I can't remember the in-canon reason for why the book is titled Moonraker. Sam can probably clue me in on that one, but it's like Bond goes to space where it's like, I think this is where the franchise was inevitably heading. Like, are you aware of the concept of um, asymptotes in mathematics? I am not. You'll have to explain that one to me. Okay, so this is on a graph. This is really boring and I hate maths as well. So like, I'm sorry. Um, I'm gay. I can't do maths. But it's basically, you do it on a (laughs) graph and you've got this equation where you put it in and so if you've got your graph if you imagine an xy axis this one like curves between the two and it gets closer and closer to an axis but it will never touch it and so you say like these values are approaching whatever so i feel like that's every franchise if it goes on long enough works like an asymptote towards space like you're seeing the fast and furious now they're in space like that's exactly where i think bond was meant to go at that time. I also like Jaws is there for some reason. Oh, Why is I love Jaws, Jaws. There? Like To get a girlfriend. Yeah, but like when you consider that scene, right? <laughs> you know where he like smiles at at her and she smiles back? Like I I would like hadn't thought about that for ages, and then I heard someone bring it up in relation to the Mandela effect, where it's like in their head she has braces. But like when you go back she doesn't. But like <laughs> She should, you know, like it makes more sense if she had braces because then that's a thing that they can bond over, I guess, because Jaws has fucked up teeth. But it's like, why? Like the scene doesn't really really make any sense. But it's just like he shows off his teeth, which can eat through metal. And she just like smiles back at him. The, the in canon, the canonical version of why Jaws comes back and that happens. Lewis Gilbert, the director, his grandson said, why does Jaws have to be a bad guy? Yeah. That's it. I love it. That's it. Like, Jaws is kind of the only other character at this stage, other than Sergeant J.W. Pepper, who's providing any kind of continuity, bar, like, the Bond actor being the same. Like, because he's, this is his, like, third appearance in a Bond film, correct? Whoa, it's his second appearance, and let's not Jaws, let's not associate Jaws, Jaws with the racist Louisiana sheriff. <laughs> Jaws is like a much better person than that. I never said they were like the same level of person, <laughs> but they. It's really weird that they serve the same function. Yeah, I mean, I. I love Jaws in Moonraker. I just love Jaws. Like, Jaws is the henchman that cosplays as a shark, and I just, I love it. Like, I think that he thinks that he is a shark. 
But this film, I don't like the film as much, but Jaws, the fact that he's so determined to kill Bond for no reason. Like, he's not even, like, hired by anybody. He just really hates Bond and, like, wants to kill him. <laughs> Came along. It is a great gag, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, Elise, how do you feel about Jaws and Moonraker? So I had Moonraker at 17, which is around where you guys have it. Um, I, But I also, like, this is... This and higher, like, or lower on, I don't know how that works. This and this through number one are, like, movies that I love. So this is kind of where it starts for me. Um, So I love this movie, even though it's number 17. It has so much campiness. As we said, Bond goes to space. Jaws gets a girlfriend. Um, The eugenics master race plot is kind of bananas, and I do love Jaws figuring out that maybe he would be excluded from the master race if he went along with what's with this plan. So he's changed sides, and that just makes me feel really happy. I just watched um, F9 the other this week for the first time, so I obviously think that that movie is the... Moonraker of the Fast and the Furious series. I was hysterically laughing watching them go into space. Um, a lot of what I had to say on this was has already been said. It came out two years after Star Wars. The one thing I really hate about this movie is there's that like Ramsey Snow dog scene at the beginning where like I think that's this movie, right? Where the woman's being chased by the dog and you just assume that it eats her. And I am not here for that. I will also say just as a note that this is the film, for those of you who are Black Widow fans and saw the Black Widow movie that came out this last summer, she's watching The Man with the Golden Gun at the beginning of the film. And Moonraker is clearly the visual reference that we're supposed to get from the Red Room Yes. And so I just, I thought, I think the Bond shout outs there are really fascinating. Yeah. And like the villain, the actual villain, not Taskmaster in it, very much like a, a certain someone in Moonraker. It's, you know, that's the vibes I got. I wonder who it could be. He's definitely based off of Jaws, right? So, Nigel, the, the, the Moonraker is Britain's first nuclear missile. That, that Drax had worked on. It was, a, it was Project Codename Moonraker in the novel. That's stupid. Yeah, well, you know, it, it wasn't the best novel either, but it didn't involve actually going to space. So, and I mean, if you're starting to think that maybe I don't like most of the Roger Moore movies, and that might influence my Bond rankings later, like actual people who played Bond, you might be right. But... <laughs> But our I'm next getting movie, a sneaking suspicion yeah. here. So. But, but our next movie on the list, number 17, is not a Roger Moore movie. It is 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, the one where they don't do grief and instead go to Vegas. And by the way, Blofeld is Howard Hughes. Yeah. What a film. I disagree. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit that in order. Nigel said, what a film, and then you disagreed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is number 23 on my oh, list you know, because you don't like it, it is extreme. No, I don't I like don't it. I don't like it either. That was sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that wasn't. I do like the... Un- 
I do like the underground lair scene at the beginning. And as we I mentioned in the Die Another Day um, section, like this is the other one that has um, a plastic surgery situation where um, Blofeld's trying to change how he looks. I do like how Bond like snuck into the lair also. So on the negatives, I would say that this is, like, just a me thing, but Connery is so 1960s Bond to me that as soon as it turns 1970, I'm like, okay, I'm done with him. I feel like the 70s in general are a campier time than the 60s, and I and I didn't like Roger Moore's movies at all the whole time I was watching him the first time, and the second time I liked him a lot more. I think Roger Moore does the 1970s camp better than Connery for me, so I feel like this should have been a Roger Moore movie. Actually, this would have been a much better Lazenby movie. Yeah. Like, even if if, if he had been on there. That's that's, fa- I, I that's think fair, everything too. Would have yeah, been. that's completely fair. Everything would have been a better Lazenby <laughs> movie. Like, imagine George Lazenby's uh, Quantum of Solace. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is what he had after he quit. Yeah. I have... I- <laughs> I have one more comment, and I didn't put this in my pros or cons section because I honestly don't know how I feel about the two gay henchmen in this movie. Um, They're very much, they're very much, so they're very much portrayed as weirdos. Um, In the book, Nobody Does It Better that I read alongside my rewatch by Mark Altman and Edward Gross. I don't remember who said it, but it was obviously someone involved with the movie was trying to say, well, they're not weirdos because they're gay. They're gay and they happen to be weirdos. And I'm like, okay, that might be true, but the portrayal still feels like these two gay people are just weird. And I don't think that I like that very much. And it's much. super ableist too, because they're clearly like kind of disfigured, although not as disfigured as they are in the book, I think. It's difficult to buy a story that anybody tells like the one that that you mentioned from the book because Fleming writes them that way. They are in his novels. They are disfigured, they are gay, and the two are connected. That is one of the worst things that Fleming does in his actual writing. So yeah. don't buy it if anybody tells you that's not what it was. Now I'm wondering like did the person who say that even read the book? So who I mean, knows? maybe not. Nigel, you also disliked Diamonds Are Forever. Where was this one on your list? Uh, I think this one was around number 19. Uh, I didn't, I don't have like a hard and fast, like written down this. It's kind of like in my head. So like it could, it, you know, things could go up or down a ranking uh, just based off of vibes, but you know, nothing too drastic. But yeah, I think like Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, isn't that what their names are? Yes. Yeah. I think that's really, really like, my least favorite part of the film and it kind of sinks the whole film like obviously the whole thing is like we're not doing grief and i guess i guess you could like view it in the sense where it's like okay well maybe you can like if they had framed it as a commentary being like well okay we're going to do escapism instead of grieving and then maybe go like well that's bad or you know like have bond at the end of the film be like well fuck you know what am I doing? I need to process this grief and trauma. I think that would have been good. But for me, it's like, like as a queer person, it's really disheartening. Obviously, like this is written in, you know, like the 60s or whatever. And it's a film 
pre-2000, which, like, I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but, like, kind of around the turn of the millennium, filmmakers started having a bit of cop on. Um, But it's really disheartening to see disability or sexuality paired with otherness and, uh, like, monstering people. Um, You know, like, it's really bad when you see it used as, like, scapegoating for Orientalism and stuff like that in books written in the 1800s like Dracula and the Beetle. But when you see it in a film and it's like as well, because for ages I thought that um, one of them was played by Crispin Glover, but it turns out it's played by his dad. And I was like, wow, Crispin Glover is just kind of immortal. So that was also like a really weird thing for me. (laughs) But yeah, like I think this is the start of things where it's like one certain aspect of it is going to sink the entire film for me and it's Winton kid because you could have it where it's like you know because they take sadistic pleasure in, in killing people right so it's like you know you could have them as this like duo of ruthless assassins who are you know they're working on their own motives like slightly for Blofeld and you know they kill anyone to cover up like anyone who knows about this thing, you know, you could do a really interesting dynamic, but the way they're written and the way they're presented and played, just no. And I feel like that's my only note on the film. Yeah. Fair. And I, the the one piece of trivia I'll, I'll add before we move on is that um, one of the things that keeps showing up in early drafts but never makes it into the final draft is they kept trying to make Goldfinger's brother happen. Goldfinger's brother was originally the villain instead of Blofeld himself. But, okay, enough about that. We're going to move on to number 16, which is the last in this, this, group of, this group of five movies. And I'm going to need you to hold your ire until the end, okay? Just, just hold on a second, take a deep breath, grab a pillow, get ready to scream into it, because number 16 on our list is 1995's GoldenEye, the one where the movie is not the video game you remember, the second scene is in fact longer than a minute and 50 some seconds, and there is no slappers only level, you guys. So I I have to say before we discuss this one that this was one of two movies that Sam and I really disagree on. Um, The reason it's so low on this list is actually because of me, because I (laughs) disliked this film so much. Like I said, Previously, I have never, I had never seen a Pierce Brosnan film before this last year, and everybody kept telling me that GoldenEye was like one of the best Bond films, so I was really excited about it, and I was really let down by it, and I think it's because I don't have nostalgia for it. So that, that is why it is so low on the, our list specifically, but Sam actually thinks it's a better movie than I do, so this was one of our points of disagreement. So, Nigel, where, do you, where does this film fall for you? I think it falls towards the better end of the spectrum of Bond films. Like, this would be around number 12 or 11 for me, depending on the day. And I think, I don't think it's anything really to do with the um, the video game, which we had. We had a lot of um, games which were adapted from um, Bond films. Like, we had From Russia With Love, um, we had Goldeneye, and we had this weird one, which I think was called, like, Nightfire or something, which is, like... Yeah. Yeah, not really adapted from anything in particular. Um, yeah, they did a From Russia with Love uh, 
game not too long after that. Yeah, like we had those for the PlayStation 2. So I have memories of those, but they're not really associated with the film. So like, I think this was maybe the first Bond film I ever saw. Like, you know, I caught it on TV or whatever. And I was like, oh, this looks really, really interesting. So I like, I don't know. It's another film where Sean Bean dies. <laughs> or, <sighs> I, I, I had that in my notes also. Yeah, where it's like, I'm watch- now when I watch this film as a grown-up, I'm expecting Sean Bean to die, which I didn't really remember between my original viewing and my reviewing as someone with, like, discerning tastes, um, where I can pick things good from bad instead of just like, oh, wow, this looks fun on a screen when you're, like, eight or wherever. But it's like, I'm expecting him to die, and then when he does it, it kind of takes a lot of the tension out of the la- like the final confrontations, where it's just like, any minute now any minute but i think the whole setup with like the golden eye satellite is pretty fun i have this as number seven on my list um i also did not play the video i did not play the video game um i'm not really a gamer you're not Um, hashtag gamer so i don't have that nostalgia but i do think this was my first bond that i remember so there is a little bit of nostalgia there i do think that this film brought bond back into fashion i do i i was really young when the dalton movies came out so i don't really remember if those like had done well or whatever so but i do think that casting judy dench as m was like really amazing i really like her in that role it was nice to have a woman be in you know, as the boss, I guess. And I do like the, like, meta commentary of her calling him a sexist, misogynistic, uh, misogynist dinosaur in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that's part of why Bond was going out of fashion before this. Because, I mean, I can understand, like, people not wanting to watch Bond because of those things. I really liked Sean Bean's performance in the movie. I felt that the friendship between his character and James was very believable. Xena on a top is completely ridiculous, and I find that Famke Jensen's performance is a little over the top for my taste, and I really enjoy things that are over the top, usually. But she kills people with her thighs, and that is pretty amazing. Um, It almost wants me to do makes me want to do leg exercises so that i can also kill people with my thighs yeah like that one scene Um, in the suicide squad where harley quinn escapes and it's just like oh yes exactly um i do also like natalia simonova um she is a good bond um i also find her very nice to look at but yeah um but i've talked with tessa about this and so she might mention this as part of her reason for not liking it but this movie feels a little bit like sexless compared to some of the other bond movies and that's in my cons list yeah so i have a few reasons why i don't like this one and the biggest one, and this is going to sound very strange, and Sam laughed at me when I mentioned this at first because I do not pay attention to sound in films as much, but the sound mixing in this film was so annoying to me because they like remixed parts of the sound for comedic effect, which they do in Bond occasionally, but they don't do it quite like this. But in the 
in the scenes with Famke Jansen's character and um, Alan Cumming's character, especially, they kept like remixing these really loud gasps for like over the top, like humor, humorous, like camp. And it annoyed the crap out of me. Like I was just like, no, like them gasping really loudly at these scenes. Does it, it is actually not funny to me. It is taking me out of the moment. And it really, really bothered me in a very strange, like auditory way. The Famke Jansen thing also really bothered me because I love Famke Jansen. I think she's, you'll know her as Jean Grey from the original X-Men films and from Hemlock Grove, as well as a bunch of other TV credits. Uh, She's a great actress, but I really felt like the reason she was a villain was because of her aggressive sexuality, which Bond has never really been afraid of. Um, As you mentioned, Elise, this film feels really sexless because Bond usually has a lot more like bond just really likes women and i don't actually think of him as a misogynist i think of him as more of a sex positive person and that doesn't mean that there isn't misogyny in a lot of the earlier films there is but to me it seemed really weird that famke jansen was like the sexualized like villain and bond was not into her because she was sexualized which is weird because bond is literally into every woman and so it just to me it just didn't make sense And then especially because the other Bond girl was like this really like pure, innocent like person. To me, it just it really read as a horror Madonna situation, which just does not feel Bond to me. Like Bond is not interested in those types of discussions or those types of stereotyping. And so that really distracted me from the rest of the film. I do love Sean Bean. I thought the plot was fine. It just wasn't as good as it had been made out for me to be. Timothy Dalton is hashtag my James Bond. And it's not so much about the actor, it's about the gritty nature of those two Bond movies, which is what I knew first, even before Connery or more. So, you know, for me, the problem is that this movie is a reboot of sorts. And I don't, I don't like the direction, you know, at least I don't like it for the exact reason that you mentioned. I think one of the other problems with that is there was a good way to do it, and then there was the way that they did it. Because they had, they grabbed uh, Michael France, who had written uh, the Stallone movie Cliffhanger, Die Hard on a Mountain, and then they got, they got <laughs> another guy to take a pass at it, Jeffrey Kane, who was like, well, that first one didn't have any structure, so I'm going to give it structure. And then they hired Bruce Feirstein, a playwright, and then they got... Um, who comes in? Uh, no, no, no. Before Fierstein comes Kevin Wade, and then they get Fierstein. There are too many writers. And the result is, this is a movie that doesn't have a lot of good continuity. It's a bunch of bits strung together, which, by the way, is why it makes such a great video game. Alan Cumming, nobody has mentioned, if you want to talk about camp, Nobody's mentioned Alan Cumming. <laughs> I already mentioned Alan Cumming. I love him. Once again, nobody what does has he mentioned say? Invincible or whatever. He's so, God. Anyway, it's not his best performance. Robbie Coltrane also <laughs> does does some good work off of his yes. performance in Cracker, which is a very interesting show, by the way. Before we move on to any more of the films, we need to talk about the fact that Bonds got jokes, and I'm going to do y'all a favor. And I'm going to go first because I'm going to take the obvious one and then I'll just open up the field for everybody else. So first of all, let's just do our favorite Q jokes, okay? 
So I've got three for you. Right, now pay attention, 007. I want you to take great care of this equipment. There are one or two rather special accessories. Q, have I ever let you down? Frequently. So there's that. There is also, don't touch my lunch. There is also, you have a license to kill, not to break traffic laws. Were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that anymore. Here's a watch. What does it do? It tells the time. It might help with your punctuality issues. Q's got jokes. What would you guys <laughs> like to add? Are there any I missed? I do want to point out that it's don't touch that pause. And he pulls up the sandwich. It's my lunch. Desmond Llewellyn has the best jokes in any Bond film. I'm just going to put that out there. But Elise, what are your top three Bond jokes? So actually, I didn't have any Q jokes on my list. Not because I don't find him to be hysterical, but there are some others I really... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, My third third top was Inspector when James... I don't think... I don't know. James points the gun at a rat and was like, who sent you? (laughs) That was fucking funny. The second joke is from Goldfinger. So after Mr. Solo gets crushed in the Lincoln Continental, Goldfinger says, Forgive me, Mr. Bond, but I but uh, I must arrange to separate mis- my gold from the late Mr. Solo. And James said, As you said, he had a pressing engagement. <laughs> um, and my number one top joke is from um, Nigel's fave, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun is Roger Moore's having drinks and Clink's I don't remember who he was having drinks with but he said bottoms up and then the cuz the bottoms up club is where they're going next and the transition is a woman's behind doing like a sexy dance at the bottoms up club and it's just the grossest funniest I am like a crude person <laughs> and that joke is my favorite bond joke in all of them it's just I I actually, like, recorded it on my phone when I was watching it because it was so funny. And when this comes out, I will uh, retweet it for everyone because it's so <laughs> good. Nigel, what are your favorite Bond jokes? Okay, so I feel like... Like, I feel like um, Old Bond kind of has most of them. So, like, there's the one in um, Dr. No where Bond knocks a bunch of people off of a cliff in their car <laughs> And the construction worker says, oh, where are they going? And the bod just says, I think they were on their way to a funeral. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And oh, God. I, I can't remember what. F- I forgot about yeah, that. Like, there's a, a whole bunch in um, Goldfinger, like, specifically with how he kills the antagonists, you know, where it's, like, shocking, positively shocking. And, like. He asks, uh, like, when he's asked where Oddjob is, where's your butler? He says something like, oh, he blew a fuse. Um, and, you know, Goldfinger, when yes. he gets sucked out of the window, it's, um, oh, he's off playing his golden harp. Like, you know, where's Goldfinger? Playing his golden harp. But I think for my number two is, I can't remember what film it is, but Bond walks into the office. I think it's Connery's Bond. But he walks into the office and he spends ages trying to line up the perfect shot to throw his hat onto um, onto a hat stand. And it's just like that piece of physical comedy, you know, is really good. And so then for my number one, 
it's my number one. Not necessarily because it's good, but because I wasn't expecting it. Uh, and I, I'll talk about it more, I guess, in the film that it's from. It's from Spectre, where he's driving the um, he's driving the repurposed um, Aston Martin, where he hits the button for uh, atmosphere, and Sinatra just starts playing it. Like I was. <laughs> Because that's such a quintessential, like, old Bond joke, and I was not expecting it in Spectre. I wasn't expecting it to just, like, come out like that. And it was, it was 009's playlist. Like, it, the whole point is that, like, this car was for somebody else, and it was, like, yeah. their music, not Bond's. Yeah, but just hitting the thing for atmosphere where he's expecting, a, like, an injector seat or something, and then just... Doo, doo, doo. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the don't touch that that's my lunch line but since that's already been taken I will also say that money penny in I don't remember which one it is it's Samantha Bond's money penny where she says you always were a cunning linguist is one of the best oh yeah, I like that one, one of the too. best money penny jokes also even though diamonds are forever is not a good movie it has one of the best cats cat blofeld moments and one of the best jokes in my opinion which is when there are two blofelds the real blofeld and the decoy blofeld and james throws the cat at one of the blofelds to see how the cat will react and the cat like hisses at him and so that's how he knows like which one to kill and like which one not to <laughs> and just like that's the i had to pause it because i was laughing so hard like because the blofeld cat thing is one of my favorite like bond tropes i love cats and i love blofeld petting the cat and the cat with the diamond collar is so fancy and just like bond being like no the cat will only react kindly to blofeld is just like it's a level of knowledge about blofeld that only james bond has and it makes me laugh every single time and then finally I just want to shout out to Jaws as a character, not for any specific moment, but just the fact that he, like, he's sent to kill Bond, and he thinks it's going to be an easy job, and the fact that it just goes on for two movies, and he keeps almost dying from the traps that he sets himself. It's a very Wile E. Coyote-type humor, but it makes me laugh a lot, and it's one of the reasons that Jaws is my favorite henchman. Tessa, may I just say quickly, um, I feel like one of the reasons maybe you like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm psychoanalyzing this, one of the reasons maybe you like the fake Blofeld cat scene <laughs> with the whole, oh, Blofeld is the only person the cat will react positively to is because it's just Grebo from the Discworld books. Yes! Well, yes. well actually, <laughs> I can tell you why. Because as somebody who had a familiar who was a white fluffy cat who loved me and terrorized everybody else. It's true. Tessa has lived with a real life version of Blofeld and that cat up to and including several times where we have been sitting in a chair and I have spun around and said, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. So, I mean, but that's you know, it's finger. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, well, it, it, it is what it is. I just want to say before we, we move on, very quickly, R.I.P. Sadie, that, that is the cat that Sam was discussing, who if there was a cat who was suited to being a Bond villain, not just Blofeld's cat, but an actual Bond villain, it would have been Sadie. And 
Also, I think I really like the cats from Diamonds Are Forever because they're fancy, like I said. And it reminds me of my favorite gif of all time, which is from the Aristocats, where Marie is like patting her cheeks like because she's so fancy. And it just it makes me happy. I'll, I'll just end on because I began with Q. I'll just end with Q. I believe it's License to Kill where Q is out in the field with Bond. And after all the jokes for years and years and years, do be careful. Bring that back. I said bring that back. There's a scene where Q just casually tosses one of his gadgets into the bushes and is like, eh, doesn't matter. It's such a good payoff. All right. I love Q in that movie to be discussed later. So this was the end of part two of our, as Nigel calls it, James Bond, Infinity War. Come back for part three. And that's it for part two. Come back next Monday for part three. And then later next week, parts four and five before the release of No Time to Die on Friday, October 8th. In the meantime, you can find Nigel on Twitter and links to her cavalcade of podcasts at Spicy Nigel. You can find Elise on Twitter at Elise underscore Tendi and her Deep Space Nine podcast on Twitter at PodRaiths. Tessa is on Twitter at Tessa. Be sure to listen to Tessa and Nigel's brand new podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Find out more about that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. Finally, you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Send us your thoughts about the rankings we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at MonkeyBacklog. Check out our brand new website, MonkeyOffMyBacklog.com. Email us at MonkeyOffMyBacklog at gmail.com. Our theme song is Hotshot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.